Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast again. I am Daniel Day, your host, and I get to be joined with Steve Pike, the founder of Urban Islands Project. Again, this is the second time you've joined me on the podcast. Welcome yeah. back. Thank you. It's always good to be with you, Daniel. Yeah. Well, listen, as always, we always start our podcast with prayer. Would you do me a favor and just say a quick word of prayer over us today as we get started? Absolutely. Lord, uh, thank you so much for the privilege that we have to follow you uh, and that you're with us. You're with us on the mountaintops and you're with us through the valley of the shadow of death. And uh, we take comfort in the fact that even though the times we live in may be challenging, there are also times that present great opportunities to see your power and your glory manifested in and through us. So we just pray that as Daniel and I have a conversation today, that the words we speak will not just be words that are conjured up in our own minds and imagination, but they will be words that come uh, that are anointed by your Holy Spirit and that you'll just help us, Lord, to say things that are, that are helpful, encouraging, challenging, convicting, whatever they need to be for the folks that are uh, joining us for this conversation today. So we just give you all the praise and glory, commit this time to you in your name. Amen. Amen. And amen. Friends, for those of you just joining us, we are with Pastor Steve Pike, the founder of Urban Islands Project and an author. And that's what we're really here to talk about today. We're going to talk about the book, Next Wave, Discovering the 21st Century Church. So congratulations on the book. Thank you. And how does it feel to have it out there and have it, you know, being read by people all over? Well, I've never, I've, I've been with my wife when she became pregnant and gave birth to our kids. And so I cannot say I really understand it except vicariously watching her go through it. But I think writing a book has some, some parallels to the, you know, there's, there's an anticipation, there's a, but there's a lot of pain. (laughs) There's a lot of inconvenience. There's you're, you're hoping. I remember when our first child was on the way and we were just trying to figure out a way to go ahead and help her body share my wife's body say, okay, it's time to be born because she was just ready for that, you know? And, um, uh, there, I was ready for this book to, to get out there. Uh, but it was, it was a long process and difficult. So in answer to your question, how's it feel? Well, to produce it, it's a lot of work. Um, it, uh, you know, the process you go through is, is so difficult. I always tell people, if you want to write a book, you kind of have to do it for yourself unless you're an established author, which I am not yet. Uh, when I say established, I'm thinking about people like Mark Batterson, our friend that you've interviewed and other folks like that who have a track record that publishers are ready to sign them up. And, and even then it's, it's, I'm not saying it's easy then, but if you've never written a book before or you're not a known author, you've got to write the book for yourself in a sense of, I'm just, I just need to get this out. And if anybody else benefits from it, then that's great. But if I can just get it out and on paper and in some kind of format, and that's, so that was really my goal was to get it out. But on the, on the way I, I realized, you know, I do think there's a significant message here and for it just to stay with me. Um, then I, I would actually be be doing something wrong, really. So I partnered with Artspeak Creative, which is a marketing company to help kind of get the word out uh, that this book is available. And I think that that's turning out to be a really important 
healthy decision because it has resulted in a lot more people becoming aware of the book and benefiting from it. So, yeah. uh, so it is, it is pleasant. Or it's exciting to see people getting it. Yeah. Amen. Well, Hey, show, show your cover. I'll show mine. I've got it. Yeah. <laughs> I've got it right here. Yeah. So I yeah, bought the uh, Kindle version and you've got the hard copy there. So however you prefer to read, um, yeah. you know, that they can access the book and, you know, I just had this thought come to me as you were talking, uh, you did not write this book right away. Uh, you've been doing the, the mission with urban islands project for a number of years, even before that with church multiplication network, uh, this book has been really germinating in your spirit for probably well over a decade, maybe longer. And um, I have to say, as I've read through this book, if you are thinking about starting a church, if you are thinking about uh, restarting a church, if you're thinking about making some changes to an established church, do yourself a favor, read this book. It is, <laughs> it is absolutely a must read. And you might not be an established author yet, but this book is so powerful. Um, and uh, I don't care if your name's not a household name yet. This book is a must read. And because it comes, it comes out of, you know, probably more than a decade of real uh, boots on the ground. Yeah. Real life observations, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, Daniel, boy, thank you. Those are, those are super kind words that you've just said, but yeah, you, I think you've hit the nail on the head. Um, you know, even some of the stories that I tell in the book go back all the way to the first church that we planted my wife and I in Utah, and that was 30 years ago. And so the, the roots of it really go back early into the roots uh, of God calling us to a hard place where, um, you know, the, the, traditional approaches to starting churches just, well, even 30 years ago, there weren't even, I don't even know if there was something called a traditional way of starting a church that people were aware of. But, but uh, you know, we went to a place where there weren't people looking for a Christian church to start. And so, yeah, that, that was very formative in what, and, and, and yeah, I, I think as I, as I wrote the book, I'm, I'm pulling in all these pieces of experience that have been part of my experience over the last 30 or 40 years. And um, yeah, so you're right. It's, it's the result. It's not just the result of a, of a research project necessarily. It's, it's the result of a life yes. of trying to figure it out. And so, yeah. I, and I think there's, there, there's some, some observations that are going to be really helpful in this particular juncture of, of time that we're in, because I think COVID kind of it, it disrupted everybody so much uh, even people who tried not to let it disrupt them it disrupted and and it's uh, it's created um i think it's accelerated if people will will take the opportunity it can accelerate our ability to be effective in ministry in the current cultural context that we find ourselves but the cool thing is the principles really go back most of the principles that I'm sharing, they're not, there's nothing new in here, really. It's just helping people recognize these proven, solid biblical truths that maybe kind of got lost in the shuffle a little bit. And I'm just kind of bringing them back out into the spotlight and saying, hey, we can't forget about this stuff because this is what makes the church effective in any time, in any age. 
Yeah, absolutely. So let's get into it. Um, at the beginning of the book, you really talk a lot about uh, how you and Sherry began to feel that calling, that stirring mm -hmm. to something different. You actually called it a radical shift. And yeah. I would like for you to just talk about that. Tell us about the radical shift that God moved you guys out of things that were comfortable, uh, things that were predictable, things that you kind of had a system going. And then all of a sudden, God said, do something different. What was it? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, prior to starting Urban Islands Project, I, I worked at the national offices for the Assembly of God as when I went there, I was my title was church planting director of church planning. I think I don't even remember what my title was, but um, but I spent so I was there for eight and a half years. And during that time, I I saw the need for what is now the church multiplication network. And, you know, boy, I, now that I'm kind of back on kind of on the outside looking in it, it, it's easy to not really understand what it takes to get something like church multiplication network going in a, in a national office, but it, it was a lot of work and a lot of time and attention. And, you know, in my, I guess just, you, you sort of assume some things are going to happen. And I was, I had been there for about, I think when, when the itch started to happen for me for, for Urban Islands Project, I was probably about seven years into being at the national office. And I, I just was starting to see some things that were disturbing to me about what was happening uh, in the cities. Um, and, and, and I started talking with my wife about this. I started praying about it. And my first, so, so the thing I saw was that Generally speaking, as the density of the population went up, the presence of the church went down. And for me, that was not acceptable. And But I also felt like, hey, I can do something about that. I'm leading Church Multiplication Network. I have a pretty good-sized platform I could speak from. And I started doing that. But uh, even as I did, I realized the limitations of being able to address that because my job as the director of Church Multiplication Network was really to help everybody, whether they're going to the urban or the rural or the suburban. And we need churches, I still believe, in all of those settings. And so my first impulse was, I'm going to do this from here. But to do that, I almost had to, I, I, I got so passionate about the urban that, you know, I, I, I just had a hard time being excited about suburban and rural church planning. Uh, because I just didn't understand yet the, the whole implications of all this. So I, so anyway, I was wrestling around in my heart and my mind. And, and again, the normal thing you do when you, when, you know, that's sort of a terminal position, so to speak, it's like, where do you go after you're the national director? You know, I, except, you know, maybe I could be elected as the general superintendent or something like that. <laughs> there's not, there's not much more you can do. And, and so, you know, the typical person who gets to that kind of place in an organization like that. Um, you know, I was 57 at the point where this all started happening. And, and that's put me about seven years from seven or eight years from retirement. And um, so that, that seemed like the glide path that I was headed for. And, you know, and in that role, you know, I had a salary, I had, benefit packages. I wasn't really having to worry about financial considerations for myself. Personally, the, the organization does a great job of, of, you know, taking care of its employees and things like that. So, but all of a sudden it started to dawn on me that God was saying, okay, I'm not calling you to comfort. 
I'm not calling you to certainty. Certainty. I'm not calling you to, you know, a, 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 a predictability. I, I, I've got something that I need to use you to do that is going to require you to step back into that lane of faith that, um, you know, requires you to depend totally on me. And so honestly, Daniel, that it took about six months of prayer and conversation with my wife and with God and listening to God to get to the place where we were willing to sort of blow up our perfectly good job that was very fulfilling, a lot of good things about it, and um, loved it. I mean, there was no like negative, bad, ugly reason. I mean, I didn't get fired. <laughs> I didn't. Uh, I think that, in fact, when I when I let Doctor Wood know that I felt I was calling on this, he he was a little, or I felt called to this. He was he was kind of puzzled, like, what 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 are you doing? Where are you going? You can't do this, you know. So it wasn't. It was it was the the reaction was more wait wait, you can't leave, you know, this is going good. Um, but I, I got to the point where I knew that I knew that I knew we had to do this. And so that's what was radical about it. Right. But the fun, the fun thing about it is that, I mean, it's, it's kind of fun now <laughs> at that point, it wasn't fun, but, but I, I realized, you know, probably a year into it when we were going through some kind of terrifying questions about, are we going to make this transition? Where's our money going to come from? You know, we're, all those kind of questions, I realized, man, I'm right back where most church planters are at. <laughs> and, and my stories were about, you know, 20 or 30 years old about, you know, trusting in God. And now, now they're like six minutes old. You know, I talked to a church planner and I had just been, uh, you know, scared spitless by something. And, um, and they were telling me about their experience. I'm like, yeah, I know exactly how you feel. I thought that way six minutes ago. And here's what God's saying to me right now. So let's take this together. So it sort of revitalized my ability, I think, to be uh, empathetic and compassionate with people that are doing the same thing. Because I think to start a church, and I'll, I'll say this, to even step into the process of, of reimagining a church or revitalizing a church, there's, there's some fear that you're going to go through that is totally normal. Uh, and, and because you are, you know, whether you're starting something new and it's stepping in the unknown or you're disrupting something that's going perfectly well, uh, man, there's a chance that it isn't going to go well. And that's where the concern and the fear come from, comes from. And so, so it's been really helpful to me to have that, you know, uh, personal experience again. Um, and, and that was, so, so we went through it together and you know what, I mean, God has been faithful, but um, like I said, there have been times, I'll, I'll just tell you this really quick, because I think it illustrates what I'm talking about. You know, honestly, one of the things I did when I was calculating this move is I did look at, well, how much equity do I have in my house? If I sell my house, how much money am I likely to get out of the house? And because um, I was just thinking, I don't know if I'm going to have any money coming in. I don't know. And so, you know, in order to go do this, this urban islands thing, I, ne I needed to at least be able to put food on the table and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, I, I thought, OK, I've got my house. And then I called up a friend of mine who was a pastor of a significant church. And I said, hey, look, I'm getting ready to kind of do this crazy thing. And there's a pretty good chance that. I mean, there's not a good, I didn't say there's a good chance, but I said, there's a chance that, you know, um, it doesn't go the way I think. And, and I might have some financial needs. Will you guys kind of 
back us up and make sure, you know, give us a year where, um, you know, we, we don't have to worry about our, our living expenses just, just to recover if we, if we make a big mistake here. So, you know, I was talking a big game of living by faith, but I was hedging my bets, you know, honestly. And so we made the big move. You know, I said, God's going to be our provider. And I'm going around telling people all this. And we get to the point uh, where the last paycheck came. It was uh, June 30th, 2014. Won't forget because two days later, the pastor who told me that he would back me up was killed in a tragic accident uh, on a missions trip. He actually, my son-in-law happened to be with him. And um, he was he was pushed off of a cliff, thrown off of a cliff by a couple of Brahmin bulls and fell like 200 feet to his death. I mean, it, it's a horrible story. Um, and um, so I was grieving for my friend uh, and his and of course, his family and the people that left behind. It was just a terrible thing. But one of the other thing I thought was, oh, no, you know, I made the deal with him. So that so that little thing was gone. You know, it was a big thing that was gone. And then a couple of weeks after that, our house finally sold and we were, you know, so now I had, I potentially had this money that was about to come to us that if we needed to, we could live on it, you know, for a period of time. And uh, so that was my other point of security that was, I was leaning on. And uh, all of a sudden they, when they came and they did the inspection on the house, they showed that the, the inspector came back and he said, yeah, there's some there's some really significant structural damage to the front end of the house from some water that's gotten in there. And he said, uh, you know, you're, I, I am not even sure about the stability of the house. He said, it's possible that it could co collapse. <laughs> now it's one thing to know, hear that when you own the house and you're not trying to sell it, but when you're trying to sell it and it's in an inspection, that information gets wrapped up into all of the official documents. So all of a sudden our house went from being something that was, that was, you know, worth a decent amount of money to our real estate agent said, Steve, it looks like you're not, not only are you not going to get any equity out of this house, you're going to owe money on it because you're going to have to repair it. You're going to have, I mean, so we were all of a sudden we were upside down uh, financially so we went from having two things that we could kind of rely on just in case God didn't show up and meet our needs according to his riches and glory <laughs> to having nothing. Uh, and, um, and I remember in the middle of that time period, uh, it was just my, my stomach was churning. I was freaking out. I was trying to trust God, but I was like, God, what in the world's happening? And I, all of a sudden in that I woke up in the middle of the night when I was just praying and crying out to God. And I felt like the Holy spirit came to me and he said, you know, you've been running around telling people that you're trusting in me. And he said, uh, I just have one question for you now. Am I going to be enough? Wow. Wow. And, and, uh, you know, when your back is against the wall and you're looking at what I was looking at, you know, you, I realized, oh my goodness, I wasn't trusting in God. I was trusting in stuff that I could see. And I just had to repent 
um, and I, and I had to, you know, get before God and just, and just confess my hypocrisy, um, and my lack of faith. And I just said, dear God, please, you know, give me faith. And I trust you. I don't have anything else to trust now except you. So Lord, take care. So that was kind of, that was a month and a half into the urban islands journey when I, when I reached that point. And that was a turning point. That was a radical shift because at that point I just surrendered, abandoned everything to God and said, okay, I'm yours. We got nothing else. Let's, you know, you're going to have to show up. And the rest of the story is we're eight, we're all, we're seven years into urban islands project. All the bills are paid. <laughs> um, all, you know, we've, we've helped start over 50 churches in different uh, urban contexts. We've seen hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars come in to provide for all the different needs that we've had to make this happen. And um, so that's what I mean by, I, I really do understand it <laughs> when uh, people that are starting new churches are going through those hor horrifying time frames where they're like, wait a minute, I stepped out to start a church for you. And, and now it looks like you've abandoned me, you know, kind of thing. So I really, anyway. I really, really appreciate you being so open and vulnerable and, even just kind of sharing some of the struggles and failures and wins uh, early on and to see how God ultimately uh, has brought you through, but brought you through even better than you could have planned. And okay. um, you talk about waves, obviously, throughout the book. And uh, one of the principles about writing a wave uh, that you bring out is the constant shifting to find the center of gravity so that you can yeah. stay on the board uh, I'm not a surfer, but I do love to paddleboard. It's one of my favorite hobbies. And actually, there aren't that many waves uh, on the bay. And so <laughs> the only waves I have to deal with is when speedboats literally try to knock me over. They try to create a wake so big that they, yeah. they, they, they'll, 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 they'll ride by and they'll try to knock me over. And they have yet to do it. They have not been able to knock me <laughs> over um, because I have found the center of gravity on that board. And so I kind of yeah. understand what you're talking about here, shifting weight. Um, yeah. So what are some shifts in the culture right now that you're observing that we really need to have our eye on? Um, and how can the church keep it center? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's okay. How much time do we have, Daniel? <laughs> well, I it's wrote up this to whole you. book that sort of, well, yeah. So the book itself is actually talking about micro shifts that we that we need to make that sort of answer the question of what does the church need to do? But the big shifts are number one, and I don't even know if I wrote about these in the book, but I, I uh, you know, that, and that's the beauty of being able to, you know, talk about this now because there's, I, I'm, I didn't stop growing when I finished the book and I'm learning new stuff. So, but one of the big ones I think I do talk about in the book is the shift from rural to urban. Um, and, and it's just, it's such a big shift. And, and sometimes when you're, in the middle of something that's so big like that. And it, and it's, it's happening really fast, but in terms of our, uh, the lifetime of a, uh, let me say it this way, it's happening fast in terms of the whole story of human history, but in the terms of a person's lifetime, it's hard to see it when you're in the middle of it. But if you, you know, the thing that's telling is that until 1905, um, 97% of the world lived in rural communities. So the people living in 
you know, 97% of the people living on the face of the earth lived in a rural community, an agrarian culture. So everything about that culture. So that was 1905. Okay, so the majority of people and the majority of churches and the more majority of expressions of the church were actually developed within the context of a rural setting. Fast forward to now, we are rapidly moving. We're, we, we've already surpassed over 50% of the world's population now lives in urban contexts. And uh, so that's just 1905 until 2021. That's, you know, you've got several thousand years of human history where rule was king. And all of a sudden in just the last century and, you know, a couple of three decades or so, it's shifted from uh, rural to urban. And, and, and so the whole context is different. The, the cities now, you know, it's gone from a few, one city, I think uh, uh, Beijing, China might've been the first city that became a million people. Well, now that's just sort of a, that's a small city. No, you don't even think of that as a big city. Now you've got cities with 30 million people and they're projecting uh, pretty soon some of the African cities will be like almost a hundred million people. So, it, and, that, and that creates new sociological realities that make it really difficult for agrarian rural forms of the church to thrive because they're just built around different things. Now, not to confuse, but just to show how complicated it is. At the same time, the interesting thing is there's actually more commonality between the rural reality and the urban reality because urban cities are more like a bunch of little towns, or as I call it, islands smashed together and each, each little town or, or island kind of has its own culture, like a rural community has its own culture. And so there's some similarities between rural and, and the outlier is really the suburban culture. Um, and and uh, so it's just, there's, there's so many things to this, but here's the deal. A church, the church has to be aware of this big urban shift toward urban and everything that that means. Urban's not just a place. It's also a, a, a mentality. It's a lifestyle. It's, it's, it's even a philosophy, I think. Um, and so the shift is from a rural mentality to a urban mentality, a rural context to an urban context. And, and everything is being affected. But even in the suburbs now, they're building, you're, if you'll notice, most suburban settings now are building these little downtown areas where you've got, you know, a shop, it's, it's a walkable shopping area and you've got some apartment buildings and stuff like that. That was inspired by the urban. Um, and so things, the urban is pushing philosophy, it's pushing architecture, it's pushing um, sociological design, everything. And the church just needs to see that because it has implications for how the church interacts with the culture around it. Another big shift is what I call corporate monarchy to individual autonomy. Uh, corporate monarchy refers to the idea uh, of, <clears throat> you know, the, the big ideas in culture come from the king, the big leader, the big voice, the official voice, the president, whatever it may be. And, and for, you know, for generations, that's the way it was. I mean, the king basically said, this is how it's going to be. And everybody just said, okay. Um, but nowadays, it's individual autonomy because of the power of the internet. One person can get on the internet and say something that goes out to everybody on the planet if they say it the right way and put it in the right context. And, and individual people are making huge impacts. Uh, you know, Elon Musk can just tweet something 
and the stock market goes up or down. You know, that didn't used to be possible. So that's a big, big shift that the church needs to see is it's no longer about the, uh, you know, who's necessarily in the seat of power or even the official uh, voices of power. It's the individual. And then the other shift that I think we have to be mindful of is Bible centric to science centric. The majority culture in the 20th century tended to have a high level of respect for the Bible, for scriptures. And we would say, you know, people would say the Bible says, I mean, Billy Graham, the Bible says, and most people highly respected that. And if the Bible said it, they took it seriously. But now, as you probably well know, now the, the big, the, the mantra of culture and society is trust science, you know, trust the science. Now that's not saying, I don't think science is bad or evil or ugly, but the shift, I mean, back in the day, it was, we trust the Bible and we trust science. Now it's, we trust science. We don't really trust the Bible <laughs> and talking about the general culture. And so that has huge implications in how the church does its ministry. It's not enough just to stride out into the culture and say, the Bible says anymore. Um, so how do we stay faithful? So here's a couple of quick ideas. And um, I, I, I just think the, the quick answer to that question is stay oriented around Jesus and his mission. Jesus supersedes all culture and all times and all waves. He's he's the solid rock that doesn't get moved by the waves, you know? Um, and so, so the, the way forward, how do we stay faithful? It's to stay oriented around Jesus, not here's what, in contrast, some people want to orient the church around the traditions of the church or around, um, the, the, the institution of the church. And I'm not, again, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that the traditions are bad or the, the, the systems or anything that, that make the church, the institutional elements of the church. I'm not saying those are bad, but, but orienting everything we do around those things versus making Jesus the center. He's the center. Um, and his mission is the center for us. And so we start with that. And then we ask that question that I think it was a hundred years ago, somebody wrote a book, what would Jesus do? And that, that question continues to be a compelling question that we need to be kind of have at the forefront of our mind, like in this current context, in this current cultural setting, what would Jesus do, which, which pushes us back to looking at Jesus and his life. And he was the physical manifestation of God who created the universe. So if you want to understand who God is, you look at Jesus. And if you want to understand how to react and respond to the challenges of culture and society, you look at how Jesus responded and reacted to the oppressive Roman Empire, to religious um, uh, Phariseeism, uh, you know, uh, hypocrisy, to sinners. I mean, how did Jesus react and respond to sinners? Um, all of those things are instructive for us as we negotiate the current setting that we have. So we fought, we, what would Jesus do? We, well, we follow him to the hard places. Jesus was always calling people to, he said, you know, my yoke is easy, but he said, pick up your cross daily. You know, so there's this pick up your cross daily and follow me. He's calling us to the hard places. We're called to follow his life pattern. Jesus lived at the intersection of grace and truth, which is a really hard address to live at because 
you know, we have a tendency as humans to either want to live on Truth Street or on Grace Street. You know, Truth Street, we just want to be right and everybody else is wrong. Grace Street, we just want to be, uh, you know, uh, just just welcoming and open armed and overlook anything that's that, 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 you know, it's just anything goes. And, and so the intersection of grace and truth is a challenging place to live because you're always being called. And that's where Jesus lives. So how do we stay faithful? We live at that intersection. And then the, one of the most powerful pictures of who Jesus is, I think, comes from John chapter one, verse 14, where Eugene Peterson, whatever you think about Eugene, I, I love this translation of the Greek words that he came up with. And it's, it's God became flesh and dwelt, uh, moved into the neighborhood. That's, that's the way he puts it, moved in the neighborhood. It's the God became flesh and, and dwelt among us. But Eugene Peterson calls it move into the neighborhood. And um, I think that that is, a, that is a piece of the mission of Jesus that the church has lost touch with a little bit. We, we, we create a Christian community in the middle of the neighborhood, but sometimes we don't actually live into the neighborhood. Um, and that's what, so you think about God emptying himself putting on the, the limitations of flesh and literally moving into a very humble setting. I mean, that's where the, that's where we're called to go is, is not to build this. He didn't come and build, you know, his first act was not to set up himself as the, you know, the king of the Christian world, but he just moved into a neighborhood and, and, and lived it out. And, and that's what he's calling us to do. So those are just some. Yeah. No, what I really Thoughts. appreciate, what I really appreciate about what you're saying is culture continues to shift. Methods will always continue to shift. Our doctrine, our belief systems remain the same. The mission never changes. And yeah. so we are always in search of opportunities to bring that unchanging mission into newfound methods. And those methods really are determined by the context in which we're called to go. And uh, you talk a lot about forms and methods. Um, yeah. And one of the things you mention is that churches that continue to build upon the 20th century forms, uh, in a nutshell, a stage, rows, a building, program-centered, um, a professional yeah. um, where people gather almost to instead of they instead of being gathered to learn to be empowered for their own calling, they're gathering to observe a few people on a platform move in their calling. So yeah. a 20th century form, you say that people who continue to build on those forms will become less and less effective. I'd love to know real quick what you mean by that. Yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, you did a great job of, of sort of summarizing some of the components that became normal for the church in the 20th century. And the reason that those became normal was because the 20th century church generally was playing kind of on our own home home turf. It's it was, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, there was a respect for the Bible. There was respect for the church. And so what was necessary for, quote unquote, success, which, again, that's another whole conversation we have, what's success? But success was often defined as, you know, how many people show up to hear, to, you know, to worship together and to hear the message. 
and how much money do they put in in the offering plate and and so the best way to get there was to create something that people that had a background in christianity or were people of the church that had moved into the community or maybe they were just they they weren't happy with the church they're going to create an environment that they feel attracted to and so that if you look at a lot of what what's called church growth techniques the church planning methodologies were all based on the assumption that there's a lot of people out there who are just really hungry for a great place to go to hear a good word to have good worship experience to be part of a christian community um and um my because of the shifts of culture that we're going through we have to be start to be realistic about the fact that the number of people that are looking for that is going down and so if you're if you're doing a business and and your market is shrinking <laughs> you can't just keep operating on the same assumptions and you know I, I don't like to compare to the church to business necessarily but here's the thing churches that can that build their programming around the concept that we're playing on our home home turf are going to be increasingly talking only to themselves that's what i mean by the 20th century forms are just it, we're just going to be in a circle talking to ourselves and uh so we again to be with jesus on his mission what is he doing he's seeking and saving that which is lost and so we've got to join him in that and 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 that propels us from just being in a circle talking to ourselves back out into the darkness and the danger of of the world empowered by the holy spirit to do something about that no it's good so good and i do appreciate you clarifying because you know there there are still um according to you know whomever you're reading at least five living generations worshiping together on any given right. Sunday morning. And, right. um, you know, life expectancy has grown and uh, there are still two, maybe three living generations that, that find those old patterns incredibly relevant um, right. to two younger generations, depending on how you split up millennials and Gen Z that when they, a typical unchurched Gen Z or doesn't wake up on Sunday thinking, Oh, I got to go to church. So right. for those three older generations that are able to invest, able to give, able to think forward, how, you know, this book really encourages yeah. them to think about, okay, how can we effectively pass the baton of faith? And maybe, yeah. you know, I've, I've asked grandparents this question and it, it puts things in perspective. I've said, you know, what kind of music would you be willing to listen to for 25 minutes a week if it meant all your grandkids would come to church with you on Sunday? Yeah. yeah. And they say, I'd listen to anything for 25 minutes. And I'm like, well, yeah, well, yeah. OK, you know, and so yeah. I think that that what this book is encouraging isn't let's don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Sure. But yeah. but for those who are uh, able to think about, OK, we need to pass our faith on and and maybe we're looking at starting a new ministry or planting a church or partnering with uh, something to do something creative on a college campus, we might not want to recreate the old wheel, but let's how, how can we bring that, that good gospel message and serve it on a new plate? Yeah. And I'll just, I'll just play off of that for a second. Cause I think that that's a great observation. I think that's definitely one way to approach it is, okay, we're going to, ask the older generation to sacrifice on behalf of their kids and their grandkids. 
and put up with some forms of the church that they would rather not have. And I, I know I talked to my mom and, and that's where she's at. You know, she's in her eighties and, you know, she, she calls me and she's got such a sweetheart, but you know, she'll, sometimes she'll just complain a little bit <laughs> about, you know, oh, you know, but she knows, man, she's grateful that her church is making the shift, but there's another, there's another way to think about it that I, I actually think it's harder and easier at the same time. And that is, I don't think that an existing church necessarily needs to kind of blow itself up and and disenfranchise all the people that are part of that church. I think that you could say, you know what, we're going to continue to have this worshiping community as we've been doing it. You know, we'll sing the songs that help you connect with Jesus. Um, We're going to preach messages that will help you be on mission with Jesus. Just like we've always done, the form is going to stay the same. But what we're going to do is empower our younger people to envision what does the church need to look like to reach their generation. And it might not, it might not look the same as what it's looked, and it might not be in a traditional place. And so I believe the future, I call it one of my, uh, uh, I, I'll just, I'm coining this phrase. I haven't heard anybody else use it, but I'm calling it omni-church. I think we went from Mega church sort of being perceived as that's what everybody's dream was. I want to be the leader of a mega church to multi-site. Most mega churches realize there's some there's some real limitations and some challenges to just building a bigger building over and over and over again. And so they started to diversify into multi-site campuses. And that sort of is probably the prevailing model that a lot of people are aspiring towards is the multi-site thing. I think the next model or the next iteration of church that's going to help the church be effective in the 21st century is what I'm calling omni-church, which is the the center church, so to speak, or the sending church serves as like a hub of ministry. And they're looking for people that are part of that, that hub that they can send out and Hey, what, you know, what's God calling you to? What's your heart breaking for? So you might have a couple that really has a heart for this underserved community that's out of reach of the, for whatever reasons, geographically or uh, you know sociologically, they're just not going to be able to get people from this low income or challenged neighborhood to come to the to the big deal. And so instead of trying to figure out how to get them to come to the big deal, they send people there and say, okay, let's start something there. And what I think is going to end up happening is it's going to put multi-site on steroids, and and the multi-site won't be you know, 10 reproductions of the main event, it'll be maybe a hundred micro expressions that are custom tuned for the context in which they're bringing the church, the presence of the church into. And so that's another approach that I think is actually, again, it's easier in one sense, because you don't have to try to get a bunch of people to change their habits. All they have to be willing to do is to send people to do things that are really different into these contexts and do what Jesus said, you know, leave the 99 and go to the one. Well, go into the one, go out in the darkness, figure it out. I think that's the future of the church is on the church. Yeah, no, so good. And I 100% agree. Um, Actually, what you just said was a better articulation of what I was trying to say a moment ago. So thank you. Uh, We'll wrap up our conversation by talking about discipleship and, um, you say that the kingdom metric for missional effectiveness is how many disciples are being made. So there's really three questions I have, and you can answer them how you like. 
what is a disciple? How do we make them? And how do you know when one is made? So that's really the question. What is a disciple? How do we make them? And how do you know when you've got a complete product in front of you here? Well, let me start by saying, Daniel, I think those three questions are the question that every church has to answer for itself. So I'm going to give an answer to those three questions, but I would I don't want people to get hung up on what I say and miss how important those questions are. So uh, I would just want to reemphasize, yeah, if to it's it's here's the thing. Again, we've defined missional effectiveness in a very narrow way by saying, you know, what really seem if you really think about it, you know, when somebody says, How big is your church? What they're asking you is how many people show up on Sunday on average. And that's the answer. So you'll say 300, 500, 5,000, whatever the number is. And then, you know, the other one that we use to measure missional effectiveness is how much money. And those are legitimate things. But I'm suggesting that those need to be, those shouldn't be the leading metrics that we care about the most. The leading metrics should be the the ones that these questions are, are centered around. How many disciples are being made? And, um, and so what is a disciple? How do we make one? And how do, how do we know when one is made? Those three questions, I would just urge, if you, know, if, if you haven't thought about that for a while as a church leader, get your staff, get your Bible, go away for a couple of days or however long you need to and wrestle with those questions and come up with the answer to those questions for you that you feel like this is what God is showing us about this. The way I would answer those questions uh, what is a disciple? I would I would say somebody is a disciple, someone who is moving toward or with Jesus is a disciple. Um, so let me explain what I mean by that. Um, Jesus, you know, in the story of Nicodemus, uh, Jesus comes into the town and he basically kind of ignores all the religious people waving branches and cheering him and all this stuff. And he picks out the worst sinner in town. <laughs> and says, I want to come have dinner with you. And I, I mean, that was so scandalous. We don't have time to talk about it. It's just that that's such a powerful message that Jesus basically walked past a bunch of kind of righteous people and picked the worst sinner and said, I want to hang out with you. What can we learn from that? Well, on the way to Zacchaeus's house, he made the statement that's sometimes get over, gets overlooked, but he just said, the son of man came to seek and save that which is lost. And in that little phrase, He really summarizes the essence of his mission, which is to seek and to save that which is lost. And so then when you look at how Jesus made disciples, he went out and he sought his disciples. And so he he went and found guys that were fishing, guys that were tax collectors, people that were, you know, doctors, all these different people. He sought them. And then he helped them come to a saving knowledge of him. And so there's the seeking side of making disciples and there's the saving side. And so I would, again, I would say, what is, who, what is a disciple? It's somebody who's moving toward Jesus. That's the seeking side. So you're helping them move toward Jesus. They haven't yet necessarily decided to follow Jesus, but you know, you're helping them move toward Jesus or they're moving with Jesus. They've decided to follow him and they're going, okay, what's next, Jesus? You know, that's the kind of thing. So, so that's what I would say is the definition of disciple. 
So how do we make one? Well, that I kind of answered that question by what I just described. You make them by being aware of the people around you and asking yourself, are they moving towards you? Do they, you know, do they need to move toward Jesus because they're not even, you know, aware or, or they've, whatever they, in other words, they they haven't accepted Christ as Lord and Savior is the language that the 20th century church would use. Um, so those would be people who we want to help move toward Jesus. And then other people, we want to help them walk with Jesus. And that's the saving side. So there's a seeking side. And here's the thing I want to emphasize is how we make one. There's intentionality on both sides. It's we, we've tended to think of disciple-making as something that happens after a person becomes a follower of Jesus. And that is definitely half of the truth. That's part, that's, that's true. We want to help people walk with Jesus and grow in faith and grace and live at the intersection of grace and truth and all that kind of stuff. But a huge part of making disciples includes uh, helping people move toward Jesus. And we want to be as, an inten- as intentional about helping people people move toward Jesus as we do in helping people move, move with Jesus. And the last question, I think the answer is almost universal. How do we know when one is made? The answer is when the disciple is making disciples. <laughs> That's when a disciple has been made. Until, until they start making other disciples, they're being discipled. And you know, to a certain degree, we will always continue to be a disciple maker and a disciple ourselves. But I think when we talk about measuring, so, you know, when you look at your church and you think about the people in your church, my encouragement would be to think about, okay, how many people across the spectrum of disciple making that I just described, how many people are we making disciples of? How, how many people are we being intentional in, in seeking in helping them move toward Jesus? How many people are we being intentional in helping them grow in Jesus? And what is that? So that's that's one of the metrics you look at. Another one is is how many of our how many how many people who are consciously following Jesus are themselves making disciples? And if that number gets bigger, then the church gets bigger. And the cool thing is the byproduct of all of that is when you gather the disciples for worship, if the number of disciples who are making disciples is going up, Guess what? The number of people who are gathered to worship Jesus and to hear the uh, you know God's word preached, that number is going up. And so the number that that in the 20th century was sort of the goal was to, that becomes a byproduct of the number that I I contend would be the kingdom number is how many disciples are being made uh, and 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 how many disciples are making disciples. Thank you so much. I just want to say again, the name of the book is Next Wave, Discovering the 21st Century Church. And, uh, you know, we've just really scratched the surface of all that your book offers. You really talk about reimagining discipleship. You talk about funding. You talk about team building. You talk about redeeming the use of architecture and rethinking all of that. Um, you talk about context and recalibration, refreshing the metrics, uh, refocusing churches' habits, and so on and so on. I tell you, we don't have near enough time. This could be a multi-multi uh, podcast to get into all of it, but really we want people to get the book. We really are just saying this is an incredible resource. It's one that I personally have benefited from. And I truly hope that anyone listening will take the time. And it costs like, I think, $5.99 on Kindle, something like that. So 
yeah. <laughs> super affordable. Yeah. And uh, I just want to say thanks for writing it and thanks for giving us some of your yeah. time. Thank you, Daniel. Yeah, just just so people know, another way they can get the book. Um, I don't. I honestly don't care how you get the book because I want you to read it and put it into practice. But um, but another way is by going to nextwave.community. And um, that's where you can get the, the physical copy of the book at the best price. Uh, Amazon's going to charge if you want a physical book. Some people are insistent, man, I don't really like the electronic thing. Um, but for those, so those hardcore real book fans, uh, the best price is going to be at Next Wave uh, nextwave.community. Just plug that in and it'll take you to a place where you have the options of, of getting the book um, and at the most in the most most affordable way. And not only that, you're going to have a way for people to connect in a community. So I don't know exactly. if you want to talk about that for a moment. Well, if, if, if you'll allow me, I certainly will. Yeah, because, um, you know, even as you and I have talked today, I've said a lot of things that I didn't put in the book because I hadn't thought about it yet. And part of those ideas that I shared today have come out of this community that we started almost a year ago. It'll be a year in October. We, we just invited people to um, enter into a conversation around the shifts of the book. And just really the, the appeal of the community is if, if you want to be part of a living conversation of people who are aware that what I call the conventional ways of being the church are becoming less and less effective over time. And you're not sure where to go next, or you have some ideas about where to go next. And you just want to get around other people who, who agree with you that, yeah, we need to move to some non-conventional approaches, but you want to do it in a way. I mean, we have uh, Dr. Charlie Self is our uh, historian slash theologian for the, the community. So we, you know, we, we're open to a lot of any, any and every idea, but Charlie helps us stay centered and, and theologically sound. So we're not going off on crazy stuff. You know, uh, we've got some amazing, I mean, Mark Batterson is part of the community. Alan Hirsch is part of the community. Um, and so we've got these, these sort of elder voices and, and voices of wisdom, as well as some younger voices that are just getting started, um, people all over the map. I mean, it's so fun. And the community's grown right now. We have about 120 members that are part of the community. And man, we are, we're looking to increase that because every new voice adds new perspective and insight that makes everything that we are learning uh, better and more uh, effective because we're, we're learning from people who are real-time practitioners on the edge, trying stuff, making mistakes, um, and doing things right and learning from all of that and passing it on to each other. So that's what the community is all about. And you're right, Next Wave community, nextwave.community will give people a chance to not only get the book, but join the community. And um, man, I would, I, I'd love to see people as a part of that. Very good. I'm going to ask you to end us out the way we began with prayer. All right. Yeah. Well, Lord, we've talked about a whole bunch of stuff. I've, I've rambled and yammered and, and said a lot of words and Lord, I just pray your Holy Spirit will, will take those, those uh, multitude of words and, and help those to be filtered in people's thoughts and minds and just really crystallize the message that you want each listener to receive and Lord help people to be 
not only hearers, but to be doers and to put into action. Because Lord, we have we have this wonderful opportunity that you've given us to be your co-laborers in this generation. And we just pray we'll do that well. We'll do that with your spirit, with your anointing, with your power. And uh, just help us to do that with, with everything that you can give us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Friends, we've been with Pastor Steve Pike, founder of Urban Islands Projects, author of Next Wave, Discovering the 21st Century Church. Pastor Steve, thanks so much. Thank you, Daniel. It's been a privilege.